section 24 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. God in Christ, Part 2. The main objection to this book, however, has not yet been stated. Some men have been as rationalistic and others as mystical as Dr. Bushnell, who have nevertheless held fast the great doctrines of the gospel, whereas Dr. Bushnell discards them and substitutes the phantoms of his own imagination in their place. This is plainly the case with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity. The course which the Church has pursued in reference to this and similar doctrines is to make a careful collation of all the scriptural facts relating to the subject, and then to frame a statement of those facts which shall avoid any contradiction either of itself or of other revealed truths. Such statement is then the church doctrine as to that subject. The doctrine does not profess to be an explanation of the facts, nor a reconciliation of them, but simply a statement of them, free from contradiction, which is to be received on the authority of God. The essential facts contained in Scripture concerning the Trinity are, 1. There is but one God, one divine being, nature or substance, 2. That the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost, divine titles, attributes, works and worship are ascribed, 3. That the Father, Son, and Spirit are so distinguished, the one from the other, that each is the source and the object of action. The Father loves and sends the Son, the Son loves and reveals the Father. The Spirit testifies of the Son and is sent by Him. The personal pronouns, I, Thou, He, are used to express this distinction. The Father says Thou to the Son, and the Son says Thou to the Father. Both speaking of the Spirit, says He or Him. All this is done not causally, occasionally, or rhetorically, but uniformly, solemnly, and didactically. 4. The Father, Son, and Spirit are represented as doing, each a specific work, and all cooperating, outwardly and inwardly, in the redemption of man, and we are required to perform specific duties which terminate on each. We look to the Father as our Father, to the Son as our Redeemer, to the Spirit as our Paraclete. We are bound to acknowledge each, as we are baptized in the name of the Son and Spirit, as well as in the name of the Father. We believe in the Son as we do in the Father, and honor the one as we do the other. Christianity, therefore, not merely as a system of doctrine, but as practical religion, is founded on this doctrine. The God, who is the object of all the exercise of Christian piety, is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Such, by common consent, are the scriptural facts on this subject. The summation of these facts, in the form of doctrine, as given by the Church, is, quote, There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, and equal in power and glory. End quote. This is the sum of the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, the common faith of the Christian world. It is scarcely more than a compendious statement of admitted facts. The word person is only a concise form of expressing the third class of facts above mentioned. It is not intended to explain them. It is intended simply as a denial that the Father, Son, and Spirit are mere modal distinctions or different revelations of God, and to affirm that those terms indicate such distinctions as that each is the agent and object of action, and can say I, and be properly addressed as thou. The Church has never taught that there are three consciousnesses, intelligences, and wills in God. It has humbly refused to press its definition of person beyond the limits just indicated, and has preferred to leave the nature of these distinctions in that obscurity 
which must ever overhang the infinite God in the view of his finite creatures. As the Bible does most clearly teach the existence of this threefold personal distinction in the Godhead, the only question is whether we will renounce its authority or believe what it asserts. Dr. Bushnell does not attempt to show that the church doctrine on this subject is unscriptural. His only objection is that he cannot understand it. He sums up his whole argument on the subject by saying, quote, such as the confusion produced by attempting to assert a real and metaphysical trinity of persons in the divine nature, whether the word is taken at its full import or diminished away by the mere something called a distinction, there is produced only contrariety, confusion, practical negation, not light. End quote. Page 135. This is all he has to say. If the word person has its proper sense, then the church doctrine asserts three consciousnesses, intelligences, and wills in the divine nature. If it means merely a distinction, then Trinitarians do not differ from Unitarians. The former, he asserts, is the meaning of the word, and therefore, quote, any intermediate doctrine between the absolute unity of God and a social unity is impossible and incredible, end quote. He shuts us up to tritheism or Unitarianism. No threefold distinction in the divine nature can be admitted. There can be no doubt, therefore, either as to our author's rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity, or as to the purely rationalistic grounds of that rejection. His own view of the subject is that the terms Father, Son, and Spirit refer to the threefold revelation of God. He says, speaking of Schleiermacher's critique of Sibelius, translated and published in the Biblical Repository, quote, the general view of the Trinity in that article coincides, it will be observed, with the view which I have presented, though the reasonings are not in all points the same. End quote. Page 111. With Schleiermacher, the absolute God is unknown. It is only the manifested or revealed God of which we can speak. This revelation is threefold. First, the manifestation of the one God in the world. This is the Father. Second, the manifestation of the one God in Jesus Christ. This is the Son. Third, the revelation of the one God in the Church, this is the Spirit. It is hardly necessary to quote particular passages to show how exactly Dr. Bushnell has adopted this system. In language almost Hegelian, he asks, page 129, what conception shall we form, quote, of God as simply in himself and as yet unrevealed, only that he is the absolute being, the infinite, the I am that I am, giving no sign that he is other than that he is. But, there is in God, taken as the absolute being, a capacity of self-expression, so to speak, which is peculiar, a generative power of form, a creative imagination in which, or by the aid of which, he can produce himself outwardly, or represent himself in the finite. End quote. Page 145. In creating worlds, quote, he only represents, expresses, or outwardly produces himself. End quote. This is the first revelation, or the Father. But, quote, as God has produced himself in all the other finite forms of being, end quote, so he appears in the human. This is the second revelation, or the Son, pages 146 and 147. Quote, but in order to the full and complete apprehension of God, a third personality, the Holy Spirit, needs to appear. By the Logos in the creation, and then by the Logos in the incarnation, assisted or set off by the Father as a relative personality, God's character, feeling, and truth are expressed. But we want also to conceive of him as in act within us, working in us under the conditions of time and progression, spiritual results of quickening, deliverance, and purification from evil. 
Accordingly, the natural image, spirit, that is breath, is taken up and clothed with personality. End quote. Page 171. This is the third revelation, or the Holy Spirit. This, true enough, is the Sabellianism of Schleiermacher, a threefold revelation of God in the world, in Christ, and in the Church. This is all very fine, but there is one thing that spoils it all. Dr. Bushnell holds the details of a system without holding its fundamental formative principle. There is nothing in this book to intimate that he is really a pantheist. On the contrary, there is everything against that assumption. Schleiermacher's whole system, however, rests on the doctrine that there is but one substance in the universe, which substance is God, and especially that the divine and human natures are identical. It is well enough, therefore, for him to talk of God's producing himself in the world, for, according to his theory, in a very high sense, the world is God. It is well enough for him to say that, though Christ is God, he had but one nature, because with him the human nature is divine, and a perfect man is God. What, therefore, in Schleiermacher is consistent and imposing is, in Dr. Bushnell, simply absurd. The system of the one is a Doric temple, that of the other is a heap of stones. We will not insult our readers with any argument to show that the Bible does not teach Sabellianism. If anyone needs such proof, we refer him to those parts of this book in which Dr. Bushnell attempts to prove that the one divine person, incarnate in Christ, sent himself, obeyed himself, and worshipped himself. The perusal will doubtless excite the reader's pity, but it will effectually convince him he must renounce faith in the scriptures before he can be a Sabellian. There is another thing to be observed. Schleiermacher stands outside of the Bible. He professes to it no manner of allegiance as a rule of faith. He takes out of it what he likes and, combining it with his pantheistical principles, constructs a massive system of theosophical philosophy which does not pretend to rest on the authority of an objective revelation. It is enough, therefore, to move one to wonder or to indignation to see that system which its author puts forth as human, presented by professed believers in the Bible as scriptural and divine. Dr. Bushnell has chosen to enroll himself among the avowed opposers of the church doctrine of the Trinity. He fully endorses as conclusive the common Unitarian objections to that doctrine, and then presents one for which its author claims no divine authority, and which stands in undisguised opposition to the word of God. He must stretch his license as a poet a great way if he can claim to be a Trinitarian simply because he recognizes a threefold revelation of God. If this be enough to constitute a Trinitarian, the title may be claimed by all the pantheists of ancient and modern times. They all have a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis of some sort. They all teach that the absolute being, which they represent very much as Dr. Bushnell does, as near, of which nothing can be affirmed and nothing denied, is ever coming to self-consciousness in the world and ever returning to himself. Dr. B. affirms with them an eternal creation, page 146, and gives us, for the living and ever-blessed Trinity, nothing but a lifeless God, a world, and humanity. This, at least, is substantially the system which he professes to adopt, and of which his book, in one aspect, is a feeble and distorted image. We say in one aspect because it is only in one aspect. It is characteristic of these discourses, as we remarked at the outset, that their elements are incongruous. They teach everything, and of course nothing. Pantheism is only one of the phases in which the manifold system of the author is presented. The book is really theistical after all. 
In rejecting the scriptural doctrine of the Trinity, our author, of course, discards the common doctrine of the Incarnation. That doctrine is arrived at precisely as the doctrine of the Trinity was framed. It is but a comprehensive statement of the facts asserted in the scriptures concerning the Lord Jesus. The most essential of those facts are, one, that all the titles, attributes, and perfections of God are ascribed to him, and that we are required to render to him all those duties of love, confidence, reverence, and obedience which are due to God alone. 2. That all the distinctive appellations, attributes, and acts of a man are ascribed to him. He is called the man Christ Jesus and the Son of Man. He is said to have been born of a woman, to have hungered and thirsted, to have bled and died, he increased in wisdom, was ignorant of the day of judgment. He manifested all innocent human affections, and, in dying, committed his soul unto God. 3. He of whom all divine perfections and all the attributes of our nature are freely and constantly predicated, when speaking of himself, always says, I, me, mine. He is always addressed as thou. He is always spoken of as he or him. There is nowhere the slightest intimation or manifestation of a twofold personality in Christ. There is not a divine soul with a human soul inhabiting the same body, i.e. he was not two persons. There is but one subsistence, suppositum, or person. For this one person is often called a man when even divine acts or perfections are attributed to him. It is the son of man who is to awake the dead, to summon all nations and to sit in judgment on all men. It is the Son of Man who was in heaven before his advent, and who, while on earth, was still in heaven. On the other hand, he is often called God when things predicated of him are human. The Lord of glory was crucified. He who was in the beginning with God, who was the true God and eternal life, was seen and handled. Again, the subject does not change, though the predicates do. Thus, in the first chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, it is said of the Son, 1. That he is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his substance. 2. That he upholds all things by the word of his power. 3. That by the offering of himself he made purification of sin. 4. That he is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here, the possession of a divine nature, the exercise of almighty power, dying as an offering for sin and exaltation to the right hand of God, are all predicated of one and the same subject. In like manner, in the second chapter of the Philippians, it is said, He who was in the form of God, and entitled to equality with God, was found in fashion as man, humbled himself so as to become obedient unto death, and is exalted above all creatures in heaven and earth. Here, equality with God, Humanity, humiliation, and exaltation are predicated of the same subject. Such representations are not peculiar to the New Testament. In all the messianic predictions, he who is declared to be the mighty God and everlasting Father is said to be born and to have a government assigned him. On one page he is called Jehovah, whose glory fills the earth, and on the next a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. In framing a comprehensive statement of these facts, it will not do to say that Christ was a mere man, for this is inconsistent with the divine perfections and honour ascribed to him. It will not do to say that he is simply God, for that is inconsistent with his manifest humanity. It will not do to say that he is God and a man as two distinct substances, for he stands forth in the evangelical history 
as manifestly one person as does Peter or John. The only thing that can be said is that, quote, the eternal Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. This is the substance of the Nicene and Athanasian creeds so far as they relate to the person of Christ. It will be observed how little this statement includes beyond the undeniable facts of the case. It asserts that there is in Christ a divine nature because divine perfections, authority, and works of necessity suppose a nature. It asserts that he has a human nature because he is not only called a man, but all the attributes of our nature are ascribed to him. And it asserts that he is one person because he always so speaks of himself and is so spoken of by the sacred writers. The church doctrine, therefore, on this subject is clearly the doctrine of the Bible. Before adverting for a moment to the objections which Dr. Bushnell urges to this view of the person of Christ, we remark on the unreasonableness of the demand which he makes when attacking the church doctrine that all obscurity should be banished from this subject. The union between the soul and body, with all the advantages of its lying within the domain of consciousness and the sphere of constant observation, is an impenetrable mystery. Dr. Bushnell can understand it as little as he can understand the relation between the divine and human natures of Christ. It is therefore glaringly unreasonable and rebellious against God to reject what he has revealed on this subject because it is a mystery and preeminently the great mystery of the gospel. Our author objects that the doctrine of two natures in Christ quote, does an affront to the plain language of the scripture. For the scripture does not say that a certain human soul called Jesus, born as such of Mary, obeyed and suffered, but it says in the boldest manner that he who was in the form of God humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. A declaration, the very point of which is not that the man Jesus was a being under human limitations, but that he who was in the form of God, the real divinity, came into the finite and was subject to human conditions. End quote page 153. In an answer to this objection, we would remark, one, that it is one of the plainest rules of interpretation that when anything is predicated of a subject inconsistent with its known and admitted nature, such predicate cannot be referred directly to the subject. It must either be understood figuratively, or in reference not to the subject itself, but to something intimately connected with it. If it is said of a man that he roars, or that he flies, or that he is shabby, these things are necessarily understood in a way consistent with the known and admitted nature of man. If it is said he is blind, or deaf, or lame, of necessity, again, this is understood of his body, and not of his spirit. In like manner, when it is said of God that he sees, hears, has hands, eyes, or ears, or that he is angry, or that he is aggrieved, or that he inquires and searches out, all these declarations are universally understood in consistency with the known and admitted nature of the Supreme Being. By a like necessity, and with as little violence to any correct rule of interpretation, when anything is affirmed of Christ that implies limitation, whether ignorance obedience or suffering, it must be understood not of the real divinity, but of his limited nature. It is only, therefore, by violating a principle of interpretation universally recognized and admitted that the objection under consideration can be sustained. 2. It was shown to be a constant usage of Scripture to predicate of Christ whatever can be predicated of either of the natures united in his person. 
of man may be affirmed anything that is true either of his soul or of his body. He may be said to be mortal or immortal, to be a spirit created in the image of God, and to be a child of the dust. And still further, he is often designated as a spirit, when what is affirmed of him is true only of his animal nature. We speak of rational and immortal beings as given up to gluttony and drunkenness, without meaning to affirm that the immortal soul can eat and drink. Why then, when it is said of the blessed Saviour that he suffered and obeyed, must it be understood of the real divinity? If Dr. Bushnell means to be consistent, he must not only assert that the deity suffers, but that God can be pierced with nails and spear. It was the Lord of glory who was crucified. They shall look on me whom they have pierced, said the eternal Jehovah. Does our author mean to affirm that it was the real divinity that was nailed to the cross and thrust through with a spear? 3. The principle of interpretation on which the objection is founded would prove that human nature is infinite and eternal. If because the scriptures say that he who was in the form of God became obedient unto death, it follows that the real divinity died, then the assertion that the Son of Man was in heaven before his advent, and in heaven while on earth, proves that human nature has the attributes of eternity and omnipresence. The Bible tells us that the Son of God assumed our nature, or took part of flesh and blood, in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, able to sympathize in the infirmities of his people. But whence the necessity of his assuming flesh and blood, if the divine nature can suffer and obey? It is really to deny God, to affirm of him what is absolutely incompatible with his divine perfections. It is a virtual denial of God, therefore, to affirm that the real divinity is ignorant, obeys, and dies. Let the Bible be interpreted on the same principle on which the language of common life is understood, and there will be no more difficulty in comprehending the declaration that the Lord of glory was crucified than the assertion concerning man, dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Is the thou in man the interior person, dust? Dr. Bushnell must say yes, and the affirmation would be as rational as his assertion that the divinity of Christ became subject to the human conditions of ignorance and sorrow. Another objection is thus presented. The common doctrine, quote, virtually denies any real unity between the human and the divine, and substitutes collocation or co-partnership for unity. The whole work of Christ as a subject, suffering redeemer, is thrown upon the human side of his nature, and the divine side, standing thus aloof, incommunicably distant, has nothing in fact to do with the transaction other than to be a spectator, end quote, page 155. There would be as much truth and reason in the assertion that the spiritual, the rational and immortal part of a dying martyr was a mere spectator of the sufferings of his body, it is the martyr who suffers, though the immaterial spirit cannot be burnt or lacerated. With equal truth, it is the Lord of glory who died upon the cross, and the Son of God who poured out his soul unto death, though we hold it blasphemy to say it was the divine nature as such, the real divinity in Christ, that was subject to the limitations and sorrows of humanity. Dr. Bushnell says a hypostatical union i.e. such an union between the human and divine as to constitute one person, is mere collation. Is the union of soul and body in one person mere collation? If it is a man who suffers when his body is injured, 
no less truly was it the Son of God who suffered when his sacred body was lacerated by the scourge or pierced with nails. The acts of Christ, for the sake of clearness, are referred to three classes. The purely divine, such as the creation of the world, the purely human, such as walking or sleeping, the theanthropical, such as his work as mediator, all he did and suffered for the redemption of the world. It was not the obedience or death of a man by which our redemption was effected, but the obedience and sufferings of the Son of God. Christ, be it remembered, is not a human person invested with certain divine perfections and prerogatives, nor was he a human person with whom a divine person dwelt in a manner analogous to God's presence in his prophets or his people, or to the indwelling of demons in the case of the possessed. He was a divine person with a human nature, and therefore everything true of that nature may be predicated of that divine person, just as freely as everything true of our material bodies may be predicated of us, whose real personality is an immaterial spirit. In some feeble analogy to the three classes of the acts of Christ above referred to is a similar classification of human actions. Some are purely bodily, as the pulsations of the heart, Others are purely mental as thoughts. Others are mixed as sensation or voluntary muscular action or the emotions of shame, fear, etc. It is absurd to confound all these and to assert that the spirit has a pulse. It is no less absurd so to separate them as to say any one of these kinds of actions is not the activity of the man. In asserting then a personal union between the two natures in Christ, the Church asserts a real union, not confounding but uniting them, so that the acts of the human nature of Christ are as truly the acts of the Son of God as the acts of our bodies are our acts. All these objections, therefore, founded on the assumption that the common doctrine provides no explanation of the mediatorial work, representing it, after all, as the work of a mere man, are destitute of foundation. It was because the divine nature as such could neither suffer nor obey that the Son of God assumed a nature capable of such obedience and suffering, but the assumption of that nature into personal union with himself made the nature his, and therefore the obedience and sufferings were also his. It is right to say God purchased the church with his own blood. A third objection is that while separate activity is made a proof of the distinct personality of the Son and Spirit, it is not allowed to be a proof of the distinct personality of the human nature of Christ. What in the Godhead is affirmed to be evidence of a distinction of persons is denied to be sufficient evidence of such distinction in the reference of the two natures in Christ. Or, to state the case still more strongly, we ascribe separate intelligence and will to the human nature of Christ and deny it to be a person though we dare not say there are three intelligences and wills in God, and still insist there are three persons in the Godhead. The simple and sufficient answer to this objection is that, in the Bible, the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinguished as separate persons, and the two natures in Christ are not so distinguished. This is reason enough to justify the Church in refusing to consider even separate intelligence and will, in the one case, proof of distinct personality, while, in the other, identity of intelligence and will is affirmed to be consistent with diversity of person. The fact is plain that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinguished as persons. The one sends, and another is sent. The one promises, the other engages. The one says, I, the other thou. It is not less plain that the two natures of Christ are not thus distinguished. 
The one nature does not address the other, the one does not send the other, neither does the one say I and thou in reference to the other. There is not only the absence of all evidence of distinct personality, but there is also the direct, manifold and uniform assertion of unity of person. There is nothing about Christ more perfectly undeniable than this, and therefore there never has been even a heresy in the church, the doubtful case of the Nestorians accepted, ascribing a twofold personality to the Redeemer. It is one and the same person of whom birth, life, death, eternity, omniscience, omnipotence, and all other attributes, human and divine, are predicated. So far, therefore, as the scriptures are concerned, there is the greatest possible difference between the relation in which the distinctions of the Trinity stand to each other, and the mutual relations of the two natures in Christ. In the one case, the distinction is personal, in the other it is not. If there is any contradiction here, it is chargeable on the Bible itself. But it may still be said that we must frame a definition of person which shall not involve the affirmation and denial of the same proposition. We cannot say separate intelligent agency constitutes or evinces personality, and then ascribe such agency to the human nature of Christ, while we deny it to be a person. Very true. We do not deny that theologians often fail in their definitions. We should be satisfied with saying that the distinctions in the Godhead are such as to lay an adequate foundation for the reciprocal use of the pronouns I, thou, he, and that the distinction between the two natures in Christ does not. If asked where lies the difference, since in both cases there is separate activity, we answer, no one can tell. We may say, indeed, that distinct subsistence is essential to personality, and that such subsistence cannot be predicated of the human nature of Christ, but is predicated in the distinctions in the Godhead. It is not, therefore, all kinds of separate activity which imply personality, but only such as involves distinct subsistence, showing that the source of the activity is an agent and not merely a power. Footnote. Dr. Bushnell has no great right to make a wry face at Trinitarians for asserting that separate intelligence and will do not necessarily infer personality, since he has begun to swallow a philosophy which asserts the single personality of the human race, though each man has his own intelligence, will, and consciousness. End footnote. The following illustration of this subject is not designed to explain it. A mystery is not capable of explanation. It is designed merely to show how much of the same obscurity overhangs other subjects about which we give ourselves very little trouble. We may, for the sake of illustration, assume the truth of the Platonic doctrine which ascribes to man a body, an animal soul, and an immortal spirit. This is not a scriptural distinction, though it is not obviously absurd, and if a matter of revelation would be cheerfully admitted. What, however, is involved in this doctrine... There is a unity of person in man, and yet three distinct activities, that of the body in the processes of respiration and digestion, that of the animal soul in all mere sensations and instincts, and that of the spirit in all intellectual and moral action. The animal soul is not a person, it has no distinct subsistence, though it may have its activity and even its own consciousness, as in the case of brutes. Now, if there is no contradiction involved in this view of the nature of man, if the animal soul may have its activity and life in personal union with the intelligent spirit, and yet that soul be not a person, then the human nature of Christ may have its activity in personal union with the Logos, and yet not be a person. We place little stress, however, on any such illustrations. Our faith rests on the plain declarations of Scripture. 
God is infinite, omniscient, and almighty, and therefore of him no limitation can be predicated, whether ignorance or weakness. Of Christ is predicated all the perfections of God and all the attributes of man, and therefore there is in him both a divine and human nature, and notwithstanding the possession of this twofold nature, he is but one person. It is not necessary to our faith that we should understand this. We can understand it just as well as we understand the mysteries of our own nature or the attributes of God. After all, the difficulty is not in the doctrines of the Trinity or the Incarnation, but in theism, the most certain and essential, and yet the most incomprehensible of all truths. But if we insist on acknowledging only one nature in Christ, how are we to conceive of his person? The following would seem to be the only possible modes in which he can be regarded. 1. That his one nature is human, and that he was a mere man. 2. That his one nature was divine. Then it may be assumed with the docite that this human appearance is but a phantasm, or with the Apollinarians, that he had a real body, but not a rational soul. That this one nature was neither divine nor human, but theanthropical, the two united into one, according to the Eutychian notion. 4. That the human and divine are identical, which is the doctrine of the new philosophy. Every one of these views, incompatible as they obviously are, Dr. Bushnell adopts by turns, except the first. He adopts, or at least dallies with, the doctrine of the docite, that the whole manifestation of Christ was a mere theophany. To assert the union of two natures in the Redeemer, or to attempt any precise statement of the constitution of his person, he says, is as though Abraham, quote, after he had entertained as a guest the Jehovah angel, or angel of the Lord, instead of receiving his message, had fallen to inquiring into the digestive process of the angel, or as if Moses, when he saw the burning bush, had fallen to speculating about the fire, end quote. Thus those who, quote, live in their logic, End quote, exclaim, quote, See Christ obeys and suffers, how can the subject be supreme, the suffering man, the impassable God? End quote. And then, in one of those exquisitive illustrations, which, as our Saviour says, of another kind of lying wonders, would, if it were possible, deceive the very elect, he adds, quote, Indeed, you may figure this whole tribe of sophisters as a man standing before that most beautiful and wondrous work of art, the beatified spirit of Guido and there commencing a quarrel with the artist that he should be so absurd as to think of making a beatified spirit out of mere linseed ochres and oxides. Would it not be more dignified to let the pigments go and take the expression of the canvas? Just so are the human personality, the obedient, subject, suffering state of Jesus, all to be taken as colours of the divine, and we are not to fool ourselves in practising our logic on the colours, but to seize at once upon the divine import and significance thereof, ascending thus to the heart of God, there to rest in the vision of his beatific glory. End quote. Page 160. The meaning of this is that, as the value and power of a picture is in, quote, the expression of the canvas, end quote, so the power of Christ is in, quote, what he expresses, end quote. In order to this expression, however, there is no need of a true body and a reasonable soul. A theophany, as in the case of the Jehovah angel, is all that is necessary. We accept this illustration as to one point. There is all the difference between the Christ of the Bible and the Christ of Dr. Bushnell that there is between an Eke Homo and the living incarnate God. In a few pages further on, the author rejects this view of the subject and says, quote, 
Christ is no such theophany, no such casual, unhistorical being as the Jehovah angel who visited Abraham. End quote, page 165. So unsteady, however, is his tread that in a few more steps he falls again into the same mode of representation. On page 172 he says, quote, Just as the Logos is incarnated in the flesh, so the Spirit makes his advent under physical signs appropriate to his office, coming in a rushing mighty wind, tipping the heads of an assembly with lambent flames, etc., etc. End quote. The Logos, therefore, was no more really incarnate than the Spirit was incorporate in the dove, the wind, or the tongues of fire. All is appearance, expression. But if Dr. Bushnell teaches the doctrine of the Docete, he still more distinctly avows that of the Apollinarians. The main point in their theory on this subject is that Christ had a human body, but not a human soul, the Logos in him taking the place of the intelligent spirit. The nature of our author's view of the constitution of Christ's person is best learnt from the answers which he gives to the objections which he sees will be made against it. The first objection is that the, quote, infinite God is represented as dwelling in a finite human person, subject to its limitations and even to its evils, and this is incredible, an insult to reason, end quote, page 148. His answer is, quote, it no more follows that a human body measures God when revealed through it than that a star, a tree, or an insect measures him when he is revealed through that, end quote, page 152. A second objection is, Christ grew in wisdom and knowledge. This he answers by saying, one, quote, that the language may well enough be taken as language of external description merely, end quote, or two, quote, if the divine was manifested in the ways of a child, it creates no difficulty which does not exist when it is manifested in the ways of a man or a world, end quote. It is as repugnant, he says, to Christ's proper deity to reason and think, as to say he learns or grows in knowledge. Page 153. A third objection is that Christ obeys, worships, and suffers. He says the Trinitarian answer to this objection, viz. that these things are to be understood of the human soul of Christ, is an affront to the scriptures, which assert that, quote, the real divinity came into the finite and was subject to human conditions, end quote. Page 154. When we see the absolute being, quote, under the conditions of increase, obedience, worship, suffering, we have nothing to do but to ask what is here expressed, and as long as we do that, we shall have no difficulty, end quote. Page 156. All is a mockery and show. Even the agony in the garden, the calling on God in Gethsemane and on the cross, was, we tremble as we write, a pantomime in which the infinite God was the actor. To such depths does a man sink when, inflated with self-conceit, he pretends to be wise above that which is written. Quote, of what so great consequence to us, he asks, are the humanities of a mere human soul. The very thing we want is to find God is moved by such humanities, touched with a feeling of our infirmities. End quote. Page 165. These passages teach distinctly the Apollinarian doctrine. They deny that there are two distinct natures in Christ, and they affirm that ignorance, weakness, obedience, worshipping and suffering, are to be predicated of the Logos, the deity, the divine nature as such. Thus far the doctrine taught in this book is little more than the reintroduction, with great pomp and circumstance, of an effete and half-forgotten heresy. It is the bringing back a dead Napoleon to the Invalide. 
Dr. Bushnell next teaches the Eutychian doctrine. Eutyches taught that the divine and human were so united in Christ as to become one nature as well as one person. He taught, as Dr. Bushnell does, that two nature, simply two persons, before the union there were two natures, after it only one. He acknowledged, therefore, in Christ, but one life, intelligence, and will. This, after all, appears to be the doctrine which Dr. Bushnell is really aiming at. We have Eutychianism, distinctly asserted, for example, on page 154. The common doctrine, he says, quote, virtually denies any real unity between the human and divine, and substitutes collocation, co-partnership, for unity. Instead of a person whose nature is the unity of the divine and the human, we have, he adds, two distinct persons, between whom our thoughts are constantly alternating, referring this to one and that to the other, and imagining, all the while, not a union of the two, in which our possible union with God is signified and sealed forever, but a practical, historical assertion of this incommunicability thrust upon our notice. End quote. In these, among other passages, we have the doctrine not that the divine nature or logos was in the place of the human soul, but that the divine and human natures were so united as to make one, neither human nor divine, but, as our author calls it, quote, the divine human, end quote. All these forms of doctrine respecting the person of Christ sprang up in the church. They all suppose the doctrine of a personal God distinct from the world. They take for granted a real creation in time. They assume a distinction between God and man as two different natures, and between matter and mind as two substances. In man, therefore, there are two substances or subjects, spirit and body, united in one person. It was at a later period, the heathen doctrine found its way into the church, that there is but one substance, intelligence and life in the universe, en mono to on ine, a doctrine which identifies God and the world, which denies any extra-mundane deity, any proper creation, any real distinction between God and man. This is the atheistic doctrine which has been revived in our day, and which has been and still is taught by deceivers and the deceived in the church as the doctrine of the Bible, or at least as consistent with it. The new philosophy teaches, as before stated, that the absolute God is nothing, he exists only as he is revealed. He produces himself in the world, or in the world he becomes objective to himself, and thus self-conscious. The human race is the highest form of the world, and consequently the highest development of God. Men are God as self-conscious. What the Bible says of the Son as being God, one with the Father, his image, etc., is to be understood of the race. God is but the substance or power of which all phenomena are the manifestations. All life is God's life, all action is his acting. There is no liberty, no sin, no immortality. Our race is immortal, but not the individuals. They succeed each other as the waves of the sea or the leaves of the forest. This is the worst form of atheism, for it not only denies God, but deifies man and destroys all morality in its very principle. Schleiermacher, in his later writings, does not go all these lengths. His system, however, is founded on the real identity of God and the world, the human and divine. Footnote. Dorner, a disciple of Schleiermacher, gives as his reason for associating him with Schelling and Hegel, 
that, quote, he undoubtedly proceeds on the assumption of the essential unity of God and man, though he did not hold that substantial pantheism in which subjectivity is a mere accident, end quote. See his Christologie, page 487. Schleiermacher was educated a Moravian. His philosophy was pantheistical. With his philosophy, his early religious convictions kept up a continual struggle, and, as it is hoped, ultimately gained the victory. This, however, does not alter the nature of his system. Footnote. It makes creation eternal and necessary. It destroys entirely human liberty and responsibility. It admits nothing as sin except to the consciousness and apprehension of the sinner. And the personal immortality of the soul it repudiates, i.e., his system leads to its rejection, but out of deference to Christ it is admitted as a fact. With him the divine being as such is the one hidden God, the Trinity is the manifested God, the Father is God as manifested in the world, the Son God as manifested in Christ, and the Spirit God as manifested in the Church. With this view of the Trinity a corresponding view of the person of Christ is necessarily connected. The world is one manifestation of God, God in one form, the human race a higher manifestation of God, which manifestation, imperfect in Adam and his posterity, is perfected in Christ. The creation begun in the former is completed in the latter. Christ is the ideal man, and as God and man are one, Christ is God. There are not two natures in Christ, but one only, a divine nature, which is truly human. As men are partakers of the imperfect nature of Adam, they are redeemed by partaking of the perfect nature of Christ, and thus the incarnation of God is continued in the church. Hence follows subjective justification and rejection of the doctrines of the atonement and regeneration by the Holy Spirit as matters of course. As Dr. Bushnell adopts Schleiermacher's views of the Trinity, he naturally adopts his doctrine as to the person of Christ. In Christ there is but one nature, that nature is divine, quote, the real divinity, end quote. It is also truly human, God in human flesh is a perfect man. He becomes incorporated in the history of our race, and thus redemption was effected. All this we have on page 149 and elsewhere. Quote, if God, says our author, were to inhabit such a vehicle, i.e. a human person, one so fellow to ourselves, and live himself as a perfect character into the biographic history of the world, a result would follow of as great magnificence as the creation of the world itself, viz. the incorporation of the divine in the history of the world, so a renovation at last of the moral and religious life of the world. If now the human person will express more of God than the whole created universe besides, and it certainly will more of God's feeling and character, and if a motive possessing as great consequence as the creation of the world invites him to do it, is it more extravagant to believe that the word will become flesh than that the word has become or produced in time a material universe? End quote. According to this passage, the word or God became a material universe, i.e. became objective to himself in the world, we suppose. In the same sense, he became flesh and was a, quote, perfect character, end quote, or a perfect man. As such, he became biographically, historically, or organically, all these expressions are used, connected with our race. The divine was thus incorporated in the history of the world, or, in other words, the incarnation of God is continued in the church. This incorporation, or incarnation, is the source of the renovation of the moral and religious life of the world. 
All this agrees with Schleiermacher to a tittle. In accordance with this same theory are such expressions as the following, which are of frequent occurrence through the work. Quote, the highest glory of the Incarnation, viz. the union signified and historically begun between God and man, end quote, page 156. Christ is, quote, an integral part in one view of the world's history, only bringing into it and setting into organic union with it the eternal life. God manifested in the flesh, historically united with our race, end quote, page 165, and all the other cant phrases of the day which are designed and adapted to ensnare silly women, male and female. We think we have made out our case. Dr. Bushnell's book, in our poor judgment, is a failure. It pulls down but does not erect. He attacks and argues against the doctrines of the Trinity, Incarnation and Atonement, and after all acknowledges not only that they are taught in Scripture, but that we are forced by the constitution or necessities of our nature to conceive of them in their scriptural form. He mixes up in his volume the most incongruous materials. He is rationalist, mystic, pantheist, Christian by turns, just as the emergency demands. He is extravagant to the extreme of paradox. He adopts, on all the subjects he discusses, the long-exploded heresies of former centuries, and endeavours to cover them all with the gaudy mantle of the new philosophy. His mysticism spoils his rationalism, and his philosophy spoils his mysticism, and is then in its turn spoiled by having its essential element left out. Instead of a real trinity, he gives us a threefold appearance— Instead of Emmanuel, God manifest in the flesh, he gives us a Christ which is either a mere expression thrown on the dark canvas of history, or a being who is neither God nor man. Instead of a true propitiation, he bids us behold a splendid work of art. These are the doctrines which, he says, quote, live in their own majesty, end quote, and for which he predicts a triumph which finds its appropriate prefiguration in nothing short of the resurrection of the Son of God. Page 116. For the honour of our race, we hope that such a book as this is not about to turn the world upside down. We have reserved to the close of our review a remark which was the first to occur to us on a perusal of these discourses. Dr. Bushnell forgets that there are certain doctrines so settled by the faith of the Church that they are no longer open questions. They are finally adjudged and determined. If men set aside the Bible and choose to speak or write as philosophers, then of course the way is open for them to teach what they please. But for Christians who acknowledge the Scriptures as their rule of faith, there are doctrines which they are bound to take as settled beyond all rational or innocent dispute. This may be regarded as a popish sentiment, as a denial of the right of private judgment, or an assertion of the infallibility of the Church. It is very far from being either. Does, however, the objector think that the errors of Romanism rest on the thin air, or are mere grotesque forms of unsubstantial vapour? If this were so, they could have neither permanence nor import. They are all sustained by an inward truth which gives them life and power despite of their deformities. It is as though a perfect statue had been left under the calcareous dripping of a cavern until deformed by incrustations, or as if some exquisite work of art, in church or convent, had been so daubed over by the annual whitewasher, or covered by the dust of centuries, as to escape recognition, but which, when the superincumbent filth is removed, appears in all its truth and beauty. The truth which underlies and sustains the Romish doctrine as to the authority of the Church in matters of faith is this, 
the Holy Spirit dwells in the people of God and leads them to the saving knowledge of divine things, so that those who depart from the faith of God's people depart from the teachings of the Spirit and from the source of life. The Romish distortion of this truth is that the Holy Ghost dwells in the Pope, as the Ultramontanists say, or in the bishops, as the Gallican theologians say, and guides him, or them, into the infallible knowledge of all matters pertaining to faith and practice. They err both as to the subjects and object of this divine guidance. They make the rulers of the external church to be its recipients, and its object to render them infallible as judges and teachers. Its true subjects are all the sincere people of God, and its object is to make them wise unto salvation. The promise of divine teaching no more secures infallibility than the promise of holiness secures perfection in this life. There is, however, such a divine teaching, and its effect is to bring the children of God in all parts of the world and in all ages of the church to unity of faith. As an historical fact, they have always and everywhere agreed in all points of necessary doctrine, and therefore to depart from their faith in such matters of agreement is to renounce the gospel. In some cases it may be difficult to determine what the true people of God have in all ages believed. This is an historical fact which evinces itself more or less distinctly, as all other facts of history do. In many cases, however, there is and can be no reasonable doubt about the matter, and the doctrines which Dr. Bushnell discusses and discards, viz. the Trinity, Incarnation and Atonement, are precisely those in which their agreement is most certain and complete. It is high time, therefore, it should be universally agreed among Christians that the rejection of these doctrines, as determined by the faith of the Church, is a rejection of Christianity, and should be so regarded and treated. Let sceptics and philosophers teach what they please, or what they dare, but it is surely time to have some certain ground in Christianity, and to put the brand of universal reprobation on the hypocritical and wicked device of preaching infidelity in a cassock. Dr. Bushnell is like a man who, wearied with the obscurity or monotony of a crowded ship, jumps overboard, determined to scull single-handed his little boat across the ocean. Or he is like a man who should leave the ark to ride out the deluge on a slimy log. Such madness excites nothing but commiseration. It is evident Dr. Bushnell does not fully understand himself. He is lost, and therefore often crosses his own path, and it is to be hoped that much of the error contained in his book has not got real or permanent possession of his mind. He is a poet, and neither a philosopher nor theologian, a bright star which has wandered from its orbit, and which must continue to wander, unless it return and obey the attraction of the great central orb, God's everlasting word. End of section 24